We are not telling you to quit your job. Here at Off The Clock, the Healthcare Entrepreneurs Podcast, we are teaching you exactly how to gain your freedom as a healthcare professional in places that school never taught you. This is OTC University and class is in session. Welcome to another edition of Off the Clock, the Healthcare Entrepreneur Podcast. As always, I'm the captivating, motivating, tentilating, and money-making Dr. Carl Bourne Jr. And I got my main man, Mr. Paulo Chang in the building. Paul, say what's up to the people. What up, what up, what up? It's your auntie's favorite nephew here, so I'm glad to be here. Yo, what's up to y'all? Yes, sir. So, I mean, at this point, you guys already know, every week it's the same thing. We bring you amazing guests. I'm not even going to ramble on about that. We're going to get right into it. Today's guest is going to tear the house down. I'm looking forward to this episode. This is about to be pure fire. Always love to celebrate Black excellence. Black is beautiful. With that being said, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our guest for today. She is an inclusive scholar practitioner working at the intersection of racial equity and entrepreneurship curriculum design. Over the course of her professional career, she has coached and consulted more than 600 Black urban entrepreneurs. A two-time author, TEDx speaker, leader, and strategist, she is the founder and principal consultant for Concept Creative Group, a technical assistance firm focused on business development, capacity building, and dynastic wealth transfer for Black entrepreneurs. Guys, this is fire. I'm not even done yet. She has been featured in several media outlets, including Ask.com, Essence Magazine, Florida A&M University Magazine, Forbes.com, and Sirium XM Radio. I need some water. Oh, my goodness. We're going to go ahead and introduce our guest for today. We have the lovely Dr. Latanya White in the building. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. How you doing, Dr. White? Good. I'm good. Thank y'all so much for having me. I'm loving the energy. And Paul, I'm actually uh, my auntie's favorite niece. So, you know, <laughs> don't tell my cousins, so. <laughs> though. We'll start okay. the episode away from them. Don't worry. We got you covered. Um, but no, thank you so much for joining us. You know, we like to be respectful of your time. And with that being said, we always kind of like to start with the why, right? Because a lot of who you are and, and what you do and what you've been able to accomplish stems from that why. So just right out the gate, you know, tell us, like, why did you even choose to pursue the field you're in? Like, Why'd you pursue the PhD in leadership change? Like, how did this, how did we get here? Talk to us. Thank you. I appreciate that. So like, all BS aside, this um, really emerged from an experience that I had on my 13th birthday. So my mom um, retired from the post office down in Miami. I actually grew up in Miami. And on my 13th birthday, which is, um, my birthday is January 2nd. So it's like, still in the middle of like holiday season. It's a real busy season for the post office with mail and packaging pre-Amazon, okay? Um, But on on my 13th birthday, my mom had to work and I was home by myself on my 13th birthday. Like she didn't get off until like two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And by that time I was like, well, the day is over, you know, I'm 13. But that solidified um, in me this idea that I would never be in a position where I had to choose work over the types of experiences that I could have and that I could create with my family. And so that was a latent um, entrepreneurial desire, but it it never really came to fruition. I was in my mid-20s before I actually became an entrepreneur and I own a bartending business. So we do bartending, uh, custom cocktail development, bartender staffing and service for tailgate parties and weddings and things of that nature. But I graduated from FAMU um, with my master's in business, but had never done a business plan, right? <laughs> so I graduated from FAMU in 2003. I started this bartending business in 
2007. Um, and then I went back to school for a degree in hospitality management from the Art Institute of Tampa. So there's all kinds of connections here. But I also was offered the opportunity to come back to FAMU and um, be a speaker, a guest speaker in the entrepreneurship course. This was like 2010. And from the feedback that the students passed along to the professor and to the department chair, they asked me if I wanted to teach the class. And I was like, in true entrepreneurship fashion, I will figure it out as I go. <laughs> so, That's so, how you do it. Exactly. So two years in, though, I felt the walls closing in on me. It, I had built my business based on relationships, and that meant I was a part of different boards in the community. Um, I was really embedded into the entrepreneurship ecosystem in Tallahassee, but as my teaching load got higher, those people politely requested that I decline or that I remove myself from the board because I just didn't, I wasn't adding any value um, to that board position. So I went to the dean. I was like, yeah, this ain't working no more. This ain't working like it used to. So in 2012, I actually prepared. I like to say that was the first time that I quit. It didn't really stick because I ended up teaching for 11 years total. Um, but I, I traveled to Bali, Indonesia to participate in an entrepreneurship accelerator program. And there were 16 of us. They were from, we were from Australia, from Canada, from France, from Singapore, um, a couple of us from the U.S. And I developed a friendship with um, one of the Indonesian um, entrepreneurs. And so the goal was to go from take this social entrepreneurship idea and in 30 days, like we're going to empower you with all the information. We're going to give you access to these technical systems and all this technology. And 30 days, we want to see you get to market. And when we got to day 26, I asked my friend who she and I still in touch. Thank God for what's out, right? She and I are still in touch. But I asked her if she was ready because her idea was to teach Indonesian women how to build their own websites so that they can create revenue streams through e-commerce. This was in 2013. She was talking about teaching women in developing countries how to develop e-commerce revenue streams so that they can be more empowered financially. And she told me then I had a that's so Ravens moment. Like I was 13,000 miles away from everybody I knew. And I'm having the same conversation with someone who I met 25 days ago. And she told me, I just don't think I'm good enough. She said, I don't think I can do it. And like, even now, almost 10 years later, I get chills retelling that story because that's the same conversations I was having with my students, the same conversations I was having with Black entrepreneurs in Tallahassee. Like, despite how much creativity and passion and resourcefulness we had, we were debilitated by fear doubt and insecurity. And so I said, coming back from Bali, that I had to become a better entrepreneurship educator. I had to do something better to empower my students and, and to be more impactful to the people that I was serving. And, you know, I'm at an HBCU. We're talking about Black entrepreneurship. It should be all over campus, right? This should be what everyone is signing up for. This is the class that everyone should want to take, but the politics of higher education, right? So I will have these conversations with my dean every two to three years about, you know, what are we gonna do about black entrepreneurship? What are we gonna do about entrepreneurship offerings? We can do this, we can have an entrepreneur in residence and it all got shut down, like politics. Not that she didn't want to, but the politics of higher education, like don't let nobody, fool you that the business of higher education isn't the most political game out there. So there just wasn't the funding to make entrepreneurship a priority at the time. Now I'll say this, I've since left FAMU. Um, it, was, it was an eye-opening experience, but along the way, I had to figure out how to be, be 
a better educator, right? As I shared, but I also needed the logic. I needed the research. And unfortunately, I had to convince people why access to entrepreneurship education was imperative for Black students. Um, and so that was the basis of my research. I really wanted to understand how I could help people under um, appreciate that making sure it's easy for people to get training in entrepreneurship, especially people who don't come from an entrepreneurial family. And so my research really was looking at, this is the reason why we can't close the wealth gap. Yeah, we, we're getting into the schools. We may have voting rights, you know, for right now, depending on when you hear this. Um, access to home ownership is easier than it's been for a lot of people, but nothing is changing economically. This last thing that we need to conquer as a people and as a culture is really entrepreneurship that not only creates wealth that we can pass to the next generation, but that we're transferring down the generational chain. So it's not just from me to my daughter, but making sure that my daughter understands how mommy did that right? What do I need to do as the beneficiary to protect it and to expand it? And then it's her responsibility to make sure that it gets to the next generation and even the generations beyond her. So that was 43 years and like five minutes. <laughs> That's crazy, y'all. Like I'm sitting here like, and I'm sure we have a question based on that last part about the wealth, but before we get to that, I want to ask, because you said something that really triggered a thought. And I think for people to kind of understand this portion. So the thing I've realized about entrepreneurship in our time as business owners is that fear, that fear factor, that debilitating, like you can convince yourself out of something. Uh, heard on a podcast last week talked about for every reason there is to do something, there's an equal reason not to do it, right? So then how do people, I'm, and I'm, I think it's dope that like you've especially gone through how to teach people to think like entrepreneurs and how to think people, like teach people how to go through that process. People don't know how to process that. But how do people start to address that bottom line portion of fear? Because I think, and let's just be real, for most of us that look like us, we weren't raised in a system of entrepreneurship. Most people that I know that, you know, Caucasian folk, a lot of them actually grew up in a system of entrepreneurship. I think back home to like Michigan, I grew up in a farm town, but dang near a lot of my friends that didn't look like me grew up on a farm and they were like just straight entrepreneurship throughout their whole life. So this is where my question comes. How do people address that bottom line fear factor? Because I think for many people, they can't even see themselves as being a successful person that does the business and does the thing because every single, like as soon as they say it, one, everybody that they love will tell them, well, why don't you, how about, and then two, they don't even believe in them to take that leap. Like they got to have backup plan of backup plans of backup plans. They can't be the crazy entrepreneurs who, Plan B is success. Plan A is execution. Plan B is success. So how do they address that bottom line? What does that look like? That's great. Um, that's really rich. So you, we know the saying, you can't know where you're going unless you know where you've come from, right? And so to your question, one of the things that's, that really had to, that I had to unpack in my research is the the construction of our identity like how do we get to become the person that shows up in the room or or however we're showing up in the world and that's referred to as identity construction i wanted to look at how do black entrepreneurs establish their identity because there is something that narrative that that inner self talk that is our identity saying this is how i see myself so what I came to um, understand, there's a concept referred to as post-traumatic slave syndrome. And it's based on a book by the same title. The researcher is Dr. Joy DeGruy. She's at Portland State University, I want to say. But there are several constructs or, or like underlying theories in this idea about post-traumatic slave syndrome that says 
the fear and the trauma that our ancestors experienced as enslaved people has become embedded in our DNA. And it's been passed down. So this is referred to as um, generational, uh, you, we hear this generational curses. This is racialized generational trauma and it's become embedded, right? So it now is a part of like our identity. And I share that because sometimes we don't even know where that fear came from. And we have to get to the core of, well, how did it originate, right? Is this something that there was something that I experienced as a child? No, this is literally something that has been passed down through your own heritage. And now with the understanding and being empowered to know that, okay, this is a part of my ancestral narrative. I have the, the power to rewrite that narrative. So when I can recognize my ancestral narrative, but I also am beholden or really feel this sense of responsibility for those who are gonna come after me, like, you know, my grandchildren and my grandchildren's grandchildren, we have to be more, um, we have to cater more towards what is this fear stopping me from doing for them? And I think if we can hold on to this idea that if I don't execute today, right, I am taking money out of my grandchildren's future bank account. I am taking real estate ownership and stocks and whole life insurance and alternative investments, I'm, I am um, taking those opportunities away from them. But, you know, that is a whole different mindset in itself, right? It takes you out of who am I today and how am I serving myself today to how does this business allow me to serve future generations? And so that's, a, that's a, uh, a concept referred to as generativity. Like I want to create something to benefit others down the generational chain. And these are people that I may never meet. And then just as an aside, um, there are Native American tribes that operate under what's called the seventh generation principle. And just in short, it's like, as a tribe, a Native American tribe makes a decision, they have to come together to discuss what is the impact of this going to be seven generations from now. Here we are talking about the next generation. They're talking about seven. So we, we got so I hope that I hope that addresses the question. That's good. That's that's really good. And I wanted to ask you because I um, was listening to a podcast interview that you did with Dr. Asha. Shout out to Dr. Asha. That's, that's one of our OTC alumni. So shout out to her. <laughs> but you had mentioned on that episode that Black people have a birthright to wealth. And I just wanted to ask you or say, could you like explain to us, how do we shape our minds to begin to move towards that transfer of wealth and being able to understand that we have ownership in it? That's good. Um, so I'm gonna, you know, tap a few nerves with this one, but we have to take more responsibility, if not complete ownership, of what our children are taught. So my daughter, she's seven years old, she's in public school. And I'm just like, this ain't where it's at because she's not challenged. And I mean, I'm talking about math, right? <laughs> math and reading. We ain't even got, it. we 15 days into Black History Month and she hadn't come home and told me nothing about her heritage as it's being taught to her from school. So I know that I have, you know, that responsibility, right? But could you imagine if we as, as a people made this concerted effort to teach our children who they are and where they come from? That is the answer to the question. We can't ask the public school system to teach our kids about how to reach their full potential because as we know, the system is working 
the way it's designed to work, which is to create margins and to oppress people with less power. I'm not going to give you any more power, right? I'm not going to teach you what you need to know to reach your, to, to self-actualize and take my power. So it comes down to what are we going to do as mentors, as big sisters and brothers, as moms, dads, and aunties and uncles, what are we going to do to do that? Um, and it's going to come down to how we educate our kids, what we expose them to. And one aspect of dynastic wealth is relational wealth. And that means I have a responsibility to bring them with me. They have to come to the meetings and to the proposals and to the pitches so that they can see what this environment is like so that when they get there on their own, it doesn't feel foreign, right? So that they have their own social capital. They have their own relationships. It's only through, I think, that type of exposure that this, this idea that wealth is your birthright is going to be communicated. Because if we look at what is being consumed, that's not the, the narrative that is being portrayed in the broader landscape of you know, contemporary media and pop culture. You mentioned uh, dynastic wealth, right? Mm -hmm. So let me go ahead and ask this question. One, can you kind of break down what that means? And then two, I remember like when I was looking through um, the dynastic wealth, you know, docu-centers, it also talked about what a dynastic family is and how they build wealth. Kind of break that down for the people so we can understand that. Yes. So we hear a lot about, you know, generational wealth. And most people think that generational wealth is what is going to change the game and level the playing field for Black America. And the research says it's not, <laughs> right? So generational wealth, if you look up the definition of generational wealth, it really only talks about financial assets. And now granted, we need the financial assets to build the dynasty, but that's only one form of wealth. Our colleagues who are in these ultra wealthy and ultra high net worth white families are being um, taught by their private wealth advisors to actually cultivate five forms of wealth. So the financial wealth is like the, the foundation, but there's spiritual wealth, which is who are we as a family? Um, there's recording the wealth of knowledge and that's getting the oral histories and knowing the passion, skills and abilities and the lived experience of other people in the family. And then we use that knowledge to say, okay, um, cause oh, you love working with your hands. And I know that because I, you know, I had the chance to really chop it up with you as a family, we're going to invest in you developing mastery of this skill. We're going to help you get your general contractor's license, because we know that that skill set is going to generate more income for this family. So financial wealth, spiritual wealth, um, the wealth of knowledge, intellectual wealth, and then we get to that relational wealth, which is I talked about the social capital. So those are five forms of wealth that dynastic families are building. And the other thing about generational wealth is it really only goes from this generation to the next. When I was conducting my dissertation research, I wanted to study black entrepreneurs who were first generation entrepreneurs, because it takes three consecutive generations that the money, you know, the wealth or the business is controlled within the family to become a dynasty. Out of the seven people that I interviewed who are first generation entrepreneurs, four of them had a grandfather or grandmother or a parent that was an entrepreneur. And so the thing about that is they felt like they were starting from the beginning. They identified as first generation entrepreneurs because it wasn't so much that they didn't have any money to start with. They didn't know what they were doing. Like nobody took them down the path to say, this is where I went wrong. Try to avoid this. No one taught them and said, this worked really, really well for me. So everybody felt like they were starting from scratch. And that's what generational wealth does because the next generation, yeah, they got it, 
But if they don't, if they aren't taught how to maintain it, they're going to blow it. And so the third generation is starting from scratch. And then the fourth generation is repeating what the second generation does. But in dynastic wealth, what you're doing as an entrepreneur, as a wealth builder, you're building out three consecutive generations into your strategic plan. That means the kids are like these, these families, they don't have family reunions. Ain't nobody selling no t-shirts, ain't nobody, you know, no, no fish plate. They ain't doing that. <laughs> they have family retreats. And so because they have a family trust that protects a lot of the assets, they're able to write this travel off. They can write off the property where they go to their retreat. And the youngest generation are in financial literacy workshops. The middle generation, they're working on the, the documents and our investment strategy. And that oldest generation is really looking at how do we train and prepare this next generation to take control. So there are so many different ways that dynastic wealth is different from generational wealth in that it's so much more comprehensive, right? Um, I mean, even down to, they don't have family reunions. I think that was the thing that blew my, blew my mind the most. <sighs> so many, so many, so many things. So I've been rereading, um, I read it last year, decided to reread it again. It's called Business Secrets from the Bible by Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And I don't know if you've read it. I've heard fantastic, of it, yes. Fantastic book. But in there, he talks about, so you pointed it out. And it's like, I want to kind of go into that a little bit more because I think for a lot of people, and as we're describing it, oh man, let me remember what the, it's on, it's on HBO. It's a show about this guy, his family, they run a news, yeah, news empire. No, uh, oh, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Anyway, so the reason why I bring that up and I bring the book up is I want to make two parallels and then let's help people kind of look at it even more intrinsically. Because I think people hearing this, I don't want them to just pass over it, but like we got to have a, like we can we can draw a framework right now as you're listening to this and say, you know what, this is where we need to go. So first in the book, it talks about in the Jewish culture, it's just like that where it's like if we're all three families the three of our families are going to develop a skill in our family so that we can serve I can serve you you can serve Carl's family Carl's family can serve mine and we're going to move this circle continuously right and what it does according to the book what it does and according to their culture is it develops this sense of as the kids are coming up until the time they get, what is it, their bar mitzvah and they become a man, they've developed an intellectual level where it's like, it's not just random. We don't just, for example, I don't know if y'all know about New York, but go look at Long Island and look, look who lives there. Go look at who lives in downtown Manhattan. It's a specific culture. I ain't going to say it, but y'all know what I'm talking about. It's folk in the book. But the reason is it's not just random. It's actually established. Now, in the TV show, I remember like I was kind of thinking about it where they literally I remember like watching it. It's like they did a family retreat and everybody in that family has to go through like training in the company. You just can't have a VP position. Right. That, that's the problem, I think, with a lot of folk in our in our in our in our in our side of things. It's like everybody feels like they got to be put on. And it's just like because we're homies. You think I'm going to treat you like LeBron treated Rich Paul. It's not the same way. Like Rich Paul still had to put in work. He didn't just become one of the top agents because random, right? So let's do this, right? How does that look like for people? Because for so long, we've heard generational wealth, generational wealth. But you pointed it out. If, if, if we get stuck, if we get stuck in a place where we do this because we come first generation, and I'm even thinking about it in, in our families. I'm pretty sure Carl and myself both have entrepreneurs in our family, but this high key still feels like the first time somebody's doing it. So how do we kind of address that first step? Because we can establish finance. We can get that bag. We can get that paper. 
But then how do we move into those four other places? Because everybody knows how to get money. Money's easy to get. But how do we do the other four steps, that relational, intellectual, recording it, and then envision that spiritual wealth? And how do we build it in our family? So even if we don't have kids, we're thinking three generations in. What does that actually look like? So first, I got to say, um, because I, I have, you know, I've had these conversations with, with other Black entrepreneurs, and they're just like, my family ain't like that. Like they don't, we don't talk about money. We don't, we don't really vibe like that. And, you know, that is the case for a lot of people. So one thing I have to first say is if, cause I got to the point with my own family where I was just, I'm talking to my six-year-old. She don't know what I'm talking about. I'm like, it's me and you, right? Because I got to do this for you. I can't wait on anybody else to be ready to have these conversations because I don't have the time, right? We know tomorrow's not promised. So the first thing I have to say is you have to be, as the entrepreneur or as the wealth creator, you have to have that grit to say, I'm going to do this if it's just me. Because that's really what I'll say is when I got to that place mentally, when I wasn't so invested in, okay, you know, everybody, they don't really want to talk about it. We ain't really doing anything. And I was so hung up on the fact that we weren't making any strides together. When I let go of that and said, I still have a lineage that I need to make sure that I take care of, everything just fell into place. So the first thing I have to say is like, have the, the wherewithal to, to be committed to it for your children or your God children or your nieces or nephew, right? If you don't have kids, but to that end, you know, once they kind of got on the bandwagon and I'll say that this book, The Whiteness of Wealth, it's by Dorothy Brown. That was the book that really changed my family's perspective because everything else I had been talking about was entrepreneurship, this and starting a business and owning a business that and not everyone sees themselves as an entrepreneur, right? And so that's why you'll hear me say entrepreneur or wealth creator, because that might be through real estate or alternative investments or Bitcoin, crypto, whatever it is. Um, but the whiteness of wealth really talks about how racism is embedded in the American tax policy. And so when my aunts and uncles could see that they were behind the eight ball even in where they purchased their home, right? Even in the fact that our, like my cousins and I, we had to take out student loans or even because we were at um, HBCUs with lower endowments, meaning they had less money to pay out, to give out in scholarships that really changed their perspective on, okay, we got to do something different so that our because there are four generations that we we meet uh, we meet weekly on Zoom. So that was when they're like, okay, that third, that fourth generation, the kids that are like under 10 right now, we need to do something now so that they aren't making the same mistakes that have been made the last two generations. It was because of that book, The Whiteness of Wealth. And so what we've done, I had really had to kind of lay that foundation to say, this is how this can affect you, even if you're not an entrepreneur. This is how this um, should inform how you buy real estate or how you advise your children to purchase their first home or how you support your grandchildren and, and their um, higher education endeavors, right? So we had to have that foundation. But from there, we got into discussions about, well, who do we, who do we want the next three generations to know who we were, because we may not meet them. We may not be around to meet them, but what do we want them to know about who we are? And so that's where that spiritual wealth comes in at. That is, what's our identity as a family? What's important to us? And although we all have different lived experiences and this, um, I'm, you know, I'm the quiet one and they're the outspoken one and they're the one you just, 
just don't want to be messed up, messed up with sometimes. But who are we as a family? And what's important to us? And so establishing those family core values is really the beginning of it. Because that says no matter what we go through as a family, we can always come back to this. And the beauty of that, um, so that kind of goes into this family constitution, right? This is who you are. So as you're six and seven years old, yeah, you hear us talking about the family trust and dynastic wealth in the family. But when you get 12 and 13 and the world tries to tell you who you are or who you should be, you come back to this document and you know who you are. You know where you come from. You know the the conversations that have been had to prepare you for success. So that's where we're getting into the two to three generations down the line. It's about who are we today? And who do we want people to know we are when we haven't met them or when we aren't around to meet them to tell our story? You know, Dr. White, it's funny because a, a lot of the stuff you're saying, it it's just it's so interesting like we can't help what we don't know right and a big part of us not being able to move the next generation forward the right way is that lack of knowledge you know and you mentioned previously one of the books that you read and it's funny because I remember when I was in middle school middle school going into high school I had a, a Sunday school teacher um black guy from Antigua and he said this quote one time to me that changed my entire perspective and we were sitting down and he asked the question he said if you wanted to hide anything from a black person where would you hide it you know and I'm like I don't know where and he said a book and I was like wow you know and 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 from that point on I've made it a priority to make sure like even outside of my schooling you know but just in general to read like even this month since it's Black History Month one of my reads is like specifically for Black History Month which is the the spook who sat by the door and based off of just so because there's so much game there's so much free knowledge in these books that kind of tell us our history and you know can help us navigate life in the right direction for the culture but I want to ask you because you you listed one I know you got more in you so because of that tell us like what would you say or like the top three books you would recommend for African-Americans to read, to help gain a better perspective, you know, towards our history as well as towards our untapped potential? So, man, that's a great question. Um, there's a book called, and don't laugh, there's the nerd in me. It's the Encyclopedia of African-American Business History. Exactly. And I, when I say wealth is our birthright, this book talks about Black business activity from 1619. This book talks about real estate moguls, Black real estate moguls in California during the gold rush. So it goes from 1619 to 1996 and I mean this it just says we've been doing this like this is nothing new to us so that one it is more okay you can read a profile on um in North Carolina mutual insurance you can read a profile on Madam CJ Walker like you can pick out any industry and find a black business profile from 1619 to like 1996 and it, it only cuts off in 96 because the book was published in 99. Now the author of that book, Dr. Juliet Walker, she has another book 
that talks about Black business activity from pre-colonial days, like from the time of the Atlantic slave trade. So that's that's one book that I offer, you know, just for those people that are like, how did we ever have wealth as a people? And the answer is yes, right? So that's one book. Post-traumatic slave syndrome really can help us understand how our lived experience, like the ancestral narrative and the lived experience of our great grandparents, how that impacts us today. And one thing, one theory from that book that I like to share is called vacant esteem. So when we talk about that fear, that doubt and that insecurity, we've heard of low esteem, low self-esteem, high self-esteem, right? To have vacant esteem means that you are not worthy, that you have no worth. And this is a byproduct of colonization and slavery that has stayed with us, for with some of us, throughout the generations. So vacant esteem is a concept from post-traumatic slave syndrome. And then, of course, the whiteness of wealth. And that really ties in tax policy redlining like how is it that I didn't inherit a house right my grandmother she has a house like why did I have to start from scratch why do I have PMI right (laughs) on my home loan on my mortgage and everything because the system is doing what it was designed to do which was to keep us in the margins to keep us as far away from having political and economic power as possible I just got to sit on that one for a minute. Um, that's crazy. That is crazy. Because the fact that you brought up to, so two-part question. One, uh, during COVID-1, um, back in, I think it was 2020, when Netflix did the Madam C.J. Walker mm-hmm. special. Mm-hmm. I remember watching it and thinking to myself, see, because on the knowledge I had then, I, I was like, it's insane. Yeah. It's insane that she was, according to history, the first right. you know, Black millionaire. Right. It's insane that the recorded portion, because now I'm thinking about it and I'm asking myself, like, how many other people were they there that just it was never recorded? Exactly. Right. Exactly. And I think, you know, it, it brings us to the point of then starting to ask ourselves the questions like one, what does it look like before? What what I mean, what would it look like in the future? And when I say it, I mean Black Wall Street. And when I say Black Wall Street, I mean the I mean, you could talk about it based on like if there was a physical Black Wall Street. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or if we're talking about building a society or at least, you know, a conglomerate of people that are able to essentially protect that level of wealth. Because like you said, the system ain't broken. The system is doing exactly what the system is built to do. And then when people make it, they just become the exception. Oh my goodness. They, meanwhile, uh, what was that? Um, I'm sorry. I don't remember what the number is, but I think it says like the average white family's net worth, whatever is like 10, a hundred times more than the black family. So the black family, I think that it's like the average black family has like $7,000 to their name. Mm-hmm. Which is like the average white family passes on like 70 to hundred grand to the next generation. So what then does that, what does that black Wall Street look like? Cause it's just crazy to think that in real time, y'all, by the way, if y'all listening in real time, I just learned that there were folk that were doing the thing back in the day that's in real time so i'm just like blown in real time so how does that happy black history month to y'all by the way um, <laughs> but how does that how does that then look like what does that look like how do people actually build that and protect it yeah so i i a former student of mine um she was working in in the gentrification space um like that's her bag she wanted to make sure that historically oppressed communities, i.e. Black neighborhoods, people there, those residents can keep their properties. And so she asked me a similar question. And 
at the time I, I must have been just in my research of, of reading about the Tulsa race riots. And I think I was so like triggered by her question because it's like, if we rebuild it physically, that can happen again. And, and if you, if anyone is familiar with the Tulsa race riots and the bombing of that area and just the, the life, right? The value of black life that we lost. I think again, like I was just, I was fresh off doing that research and I was just so triggered by the thought of having to go through that kind of trauma again. I was like, we don't necessarily have to rebuild it physically, but the spirit of Black Wall Street, oh, we could do that all day. Now, what I will say is it's going to take a concerted effort. Um, as I was doing my research, as I was doing my dissertation, I, I got to this place where I was like, okay, all it would take is for us to do a little bit more, you know, add racial equity and, and the lived experience and this historical context. Like, let's talk about redlining in these entrepreneurship classes at HBCUs so that students have an idea of why they don't have access to capital. Let's talk about these things. And I was like, okay, we just get more um, entrepreneurship curricula to be redesigned to really like embed this discussion, we might really make some magic. But then, <laughs> but then I realized I had, by the time a, a student gets to college, their identity is almost so concretely fixed that it's, it's hard, like I had the hardest time trying to convince my students that you can do this in 16 weeks, I'm here for you. Like I did it in 30 days, I know you can do it in 16 weeks. The concept of that was so foreign. So I said, okay, what are some other ways or, or other places in like this life journey where these conversations need to happen? So it needs to roll back, not just in high school, not in middle school. We need to start talking about wealth building and entrepreneurship different from financial literacy. Let's be clear about that. As early as elementary school, like especially in Title I schools, which are predominantly Black and Hispanic schools, those kids need to be exposed to entrepreneurship as early as possible. That's how we start to to have this kindling and this excitement that goes with us. Because by the time we get to, you know, our age, all right, it's sometimes it's just out of necessity, right? But if we can inspire these kids and expose them to the concept of entrepreneurship and dynastic wealth and wealth transfer at earlier ages, then that is the momentum that can carry us into these next three, five, and seven generations about the spirit of Black Wall Street. Perfect. So I want to ask this question, and I feel like this is a, I feel like this is a nice uh, question for us to end on because we could keep going. This is, <laughs> we, we, we just, we're going to have to bring you back because oh, this is, no, this was awesome. But I want to ask you, this is a question that we've asked before, but normally it, the value of it is a little bit different. I think it'll be more valuable to us now, um, especially because it's Black History Month. Let me ask you, if you could say, you know how people always talk about like who's on your Mount Rushmore of R&B or hip hop or whatever the case may be. If you could say your Mount Rushmore, who would be on your Mount Rushmore of Black entrepreneurs? So I would probably say um, the patriarch of the Russell family they're a political construction family in Atlanta. So the Russell Center for um, Innovation and Entrepreneurship, I think is uh, the, the acronym, but that's a dynastic family. So the, the, when I was doing my research, I wanted to study Black dynastic families, but then I was like, there are so few families that have controlled the wealth for three generations that I couldn't find any. 
Like I couldn't find a large enough sample to interview for my dissertation. So that's how I end up having to go back to first generation entrepreneurs. But the Russell family is a, a dynastic family. Um, the Madam C.J. Walker family, they reached dynastic status. They got to four generations of control, but then it was sold out of the family. Um, and so I would really want to, to have these Black dynastic families on my Mount Rushmore, but I got to find them, right? We got to find them. We got to tell their stories. Um, I was referring to that encyclopedia, and there was... I think North Carolina Mutual Insurance based out of Durham, that was a dynastic family, but it's now that the insurance company is like insolvent. They're like in trouble with the state of North Carolina. So it comes down to how do we find these families that have maintained the business or maintained the wealth for those three generations? And those are the people that I would put up on, on my Mount Rushmore to give us a visual for this is possible. This can be done. And now, because oftentimes you can't be what you can't see, now that we see it, we can do more of it. I'll accept that. <laughs> All no, right. But, but seriously, thank you. You know, like we really appreciate you, you know, coming on and making the time to talk about this because this is much needed, you know, and when we started OTC, it was because we realized that there were no black men in the healthcare space that wanted to do, or maybe they did, but were doing it, you know, yeah. so this is, this is for the culture, you know, and this episode especially is for the culture. So shout out to you for coming on black history month this is this is like picture perfect you know what thank i'm saying <laughs> no no thank you but for anyone who you know is listening now and this is their first time being exposed to you what would be some contact information or social media info you'd want to leave with them yeah so i'm um meet professor white on instagram and it's p-r-o-f white because ain't nobody spelling out professor. I know that much. My students taught me that. Um, so meet Prof White, um, that, that's on Instagram and meetprofwhite.com, like for my website and everything. Um, pretty active on LinkedIn. So you can just find me under Latanya White. Perfect. To our lovely listeners, guys, thank you so much for tuning into this episode. This was fire. And I don't know about y'all, but I'm definitely going to make sure I grab that encyclopedia off of Amazon because that's a, that's definitely a must read. And that's definitely a, a central that has to go on my bookshelf over here. Um, guys, do us a favor. Go hit up Dr. White. Tell her how much you enjoyed the episode. Ask her for some more Black history facts, some more knowledge, some more game. Maybe she'll give it to you for free. Maybe she'll charge you. I don't know. I can't make no promises, but <laughs> that's, that's, that's up to your discretion. So we'll, we'll see. Uh, but seriously, thank you so much for, for joining, you know, and, and talking to us, to our people. We appreciate it. Guys, before we go, remember, if you need anything as far as STO goes, me and Paul, OTC, we got you covered. All right. Support a black business. Okay. We'll take care of you anyway. But until next time, guys, peace. Many blessings. Thank you for listening to another episode of Off the Clock. Don't be shy to leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. See you next episode.